0: Okay, we are continuing together our study in the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. So, if you want to turn in your confession of faith to chapter 30, we're going to be looking at paragraph 7 and perhaps paragraph 8 today as we proceed through uh, the last uh, part of this this chapter on the Lord's Supper. Now, what we're dealing with in paragraphs 7 and 8 are the subject of the worthy reception of the Lord's Supper in paragraph 7 and then the unworthy reception of the Lord's Supper in paragraph 8. So once again, a positive setting forth of how it ought to be and then a negative declaration of how it shouldn't be, okay? So, paragraph 7, the worthy reception of the Lord's Supper. It says, Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporately, but spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified, and all the benefits of his death. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporately or carnally. But spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance. As the elements themselves are to their outward senses. So that's the worthy reception. And then the unworthy paragraph eight. All ignorant and ungodly persons. As they are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ, so they are unworthy of the Lord's table, and cannot, without great sin against Him, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted thereunto. Yea, whosoever shall receive unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, eating and drinking judgment to themselves. So what we're going to do today then is talk about the worthy reception of the Lord's Supper. Now, what it says here in paragraph seven is that first of all, we have to outwardly receive the physical elements. That is, we need to pick up the bread with our hand, put it in our mouth, chew it and swallow it, take the cup in our hand, drink it and swallow it. That is, actually physically consume uh, the outward elements. Now turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians 11. And we'll look together at verses 23 to 26. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 26. Paul says in verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. So he specifically instructed them and told them, You need to consume this item. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show or declare the Lord's death till he come. Verse 27, Whosoever therefore shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and blood. So obviously this is not a ceremony we do in our head. Okay. This is a ceremony we do with our hands. We do with our bodies. We actually eat and consume uh, the elements. Now, why? Um, And and the answer is simply that eating and drinking are symbolic acts. Um, It's just like we can't... Um, be baptized by intention. We have to actually get in the water and go under the water and come up out of the water. Uh, In the same way, we can't consume, we can't participate in the Lord's supper by intention. We actually have to physically uh, perform the act because the act is a symbolic act. So just like when we salute the flag, when we're saying the pledge of allegiance, you know, if you're a soldier, your hands up here, if you're a citizen, your hand is down here. Um, or we bow our heads when we pray. Why do we do that? You know Why, why do you do this? It's a symbolic act of, of humbling oneself before God. It's recognizing his sovereignty and supremacy and our unworthiness and, and and our humility. And so we engage in symbolic acts all the time. When someone is leaving, we, we go like this. We wave our hand at them. You know, why do you do that? It's a symbolic act, isn't it? Okay. And you're communicating something when you do that. So... We engage in these acts all the time, and the reason why we do so is because they convey a message. Now, um, it's important then that the person who's doing the symbolic act not only do it outwardly in form, but also that they have, along with that, uh, the proper attitude and disposition of the heart. And uh, so that there's an outward act along with an inward participation in the meaning of that outward act. To go through an outward act while inwardly uh, you are not participating at all is to make that outward act simply a sham. Okay. So um, it's important then that we uh, recognize that mere outward eating isn't enough. If you show up to the Lord's Supper and you put the bread in your mouth, and you swallow it, and you put the wine in your mouth, and you drink it, uh, but your heart and mind are a million miles away, Uh, the Lord's Supper has actually done you no good whatsoever. In fact, you've sinned in the act of participation in the Lord's Supper, if that's the case. You've eaten and drinken unworthily, and we're going to talk about what that is when we get to paragraph 8, all right? So, then secondly, not only must we outwardly receive the physical elements, but we must inwardly, by faith, embrace Christ and his saving work. We must inwardly, by faith, embrace Christ and his saving work. Now, you'll notice how carefully the authors of our confession fence this concept that they're now explaining. We just spent a good deal of time in paragraph six rebutting transubstantiation. Okay. So when they talk about feeding upon Christ, which they do in the passage uh, and and whatnot, they're, they're very careful to say twice, not carnally and corporately. That is, uh, In in flesh and form is the idea there that is in bulk and substance, if you will. (laughs) Um, And so it says worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance do then also inwardly. Now, I want to stop there for a second and and talk about outward and inward. Uh, Outwardly, you're all here. Inwardly. I hope you're all here. Now, I can't say for sure because I can't see into your hearts. I don't know what's going on in your mind. But, you know, God desires that his people worship him in spirit and in truth. And to worship in spirit is to engage the inward man, our heart, if you will, our mind, our affections, our emotions, and involve them directly in what we're doing without allowing them to be distracted to other things, and so um, one of the things that Jesus said, and let's turn, please, to Matthew chapter um, fifteen, is is that God is very concerned with heart worship. <clears throat> He says in Matthew 15 and verse 7 through 9, he says, You hypocrites, and now he's going to identify what the hypocrisy consists of. He says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draws near to me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that was unacceptable. He says in verse 9, "...but in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men." And so vain worship consists of wrong teaching. Okay, If I stood up here and taught you Jehovah's Witness theology, no matter how sincere and hard engaged you were, you would be engaging in vain worship if you were worshiping according to that body of truth. But if I stand up here and preach the pure doctrine of the word of God... Okay, and you're here in body, but your heart is far away, then you're also engaging in vain worship. So to have true worship, there's got to be the outward presence and participation along with the inward engagement of the heart for there to be true worship. Otherwise, it's vain worship. So we have to worship in spirit, that is the engagement of the inward man, and in truth. That is according to proper content and practice in order for there to be true worship. And of course, that, that concept I'm quoting out of John chapter four, when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well and she says, uh, you know, our fathers say that in Mount Gezreem we're supposed to worship, but you people say in Jerusalem. And he says, you know, woman, the hour is coming and now is when they who worship God will worship uh, neither here nor in that mountain. He says, the true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth, and the Father seeks such to worship him. So Jesus says it's not the place, it's the participation of the inward man uh, engaging with the truth that constitutes true worship. So, when we gather for the Lord's Supper, it's important that you not only be here with your body, but you be here with your heart, with your mind as well. And when you eat the bread and when you drink the the cup um, that inwardly you're, you're doing something as you're doing those acts outwardly. Okay. So a heart religion is the essence of Christianity. If we don't get that, we can be in the most orthodox church and we can do the most orthodox things. We can sing the most orthodox hymns, but people come to a church like this where we have uh, the truth up to our necks and go out the door without ever having worshipped, even though they've engaged in all the motions, because their heart wasn't here. All right, and uh, and you know I, I have to just share my personal experience. I struggle with this. Okay, you might think that's funny, but even when I'm up here leading worship and um, and you know we're singing a hymn, my mind wants to go ahead to what's the next step in the worship you know, and just sing the words. I mean, you can't tell. Oh, I'm singing along here, but my mind is like somewhere else. Okay. Has that ever happened to you? Okay. And, and I have to say, no, quit letting your mind go ahead. Or, you know, I might see one of you and think about a need in your life or something you said two weeks ago or whatever. And, and I'm going, no, I can't do that. You know, I've got to focus on... On the worship, okay? And it's the same way when I'm preaching, I'm sure I'll be preaching along. Now, I'm focused when I'm preaching. (laughs) Um, My mind is not somewhere else when that happens. Um, But for you, I might say something that triggers a memory and your mind runs off over there, and five minutes later you go, oh, you know, and you clue back into the message. Has that ever happened to you? Sure it has. And uh, so, what it requires is, as the Bible says, taking every thought captive, okay? And disciplining our minds and our hearts so we stay focused. And I have to drag my heart back to what I'm doing time and time again. Um, and it's hard work and it's discipline to uh, worship um, with our hearts as well as with our hands. So, um, we, uh, we want to... Uh, bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and not let our minds just wander around and think because we're here with our bodies we got the job done. So that's what they're focusing on here. Worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance do then also inwardly by faith. Now notice it's by faith they're doing this. By faith really and truly that is really and indeed it says in the confession yet not carnally and corporately but spiritually notice they're being very careful to fence what they're saying here and define it they receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death now when we eat the bread and we drink the wine what are we doing we're feeding aren't we I mean you know Uh, I hear people say, um, you know, the elk were feeding on that hillside. And what they mean is that they were eating grass on the hillside. And so when we sit down and eat food, we are feeding. We're taking that which is outside of ourselves and putting it inside of ourselves. Well, in the same way... Uh, to feed upon Christ to use the language here to receive and feed is like we talked earlier. Remember we went through John chapter six, Jesus says, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have no life in you. And we talked about that metaphor and the metaphor of eating and drinking is taking that which is outside of yourself and receiving it into yourself. And so when we receive and feed upon Christ by faith at the communion service, We are doing spiritually what we're doing physically with the physical elements, which are and remain bread and wine. We're doing that spiritually with Christ. So what happens? Well, what happens is our hearts go out to Christ and we are praying to him. We are saying to him, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. Uh, Thank you for... Uh, coming into my life and redeeming me. And uh, and Lord Jesus, just as I'm receiving these elements, I want to receive you again into my life, not because I need to get saved again, but because we need to receive Christ every day. We need to reconnect, re-establish communion with Him every day. We need to um, rebuild and redeepen the fellowship. And so um, you know, I got saved when I was seventeen. But I reaffirm my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior from sin every day. Now, why do I do that? Because I think I need to get saved again? No. but Because I'm just reaffirming what I did again. And, you know, it's just like <clears throat> every day when, when, when you wake up, uh, you reaffirm your commitment to your wife or to your husband and your love to your children. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's like the joke about the guy who... who uh, you know, was married to his wife for like 20 years, and she says, sweetheart, you know, you never tell me you love me. He says, I told you I loved you when I married you, and if I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. It's like, you know, he told her once 20 years ago, and that was good enough. What does she want to hear it again for? Well, don't you like to be told like every day, several times a day by your husband or your wife, I love you. I mean, we do it. I I like it. I like for my wife and my kids to tell me all the time, I love you, dad, or I love you, sweetheart. And, 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 and I give the same. So, <clears throat> um, when people show up to church, what do we do? Shake hands? We hug? Right? What are we doing? We're reaffirming the love and the commitment we have to each other. So that's what we're doing when we inwardly partake of Christ at the communion service. And so, um, Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death is what we're focused on inwardly. And we have these elements in our hands, but we're looking beyond the elements to the one they represent. And we're actually having communion with him as our hands and our bodies have communion with the bread and the wine. So this reception of Christ has nothing to do with the bread and wine per se. The bread and the wine don't contain Christ. And when you take them in, that's not how you get Christ. All right? The bread and the wine convey no grace. There's no magic there at all in those elements. The magic, if you will, is in the interaction of your heart by faith with Christ. That's where the grace comes. Shouldn't use the word magic, but you know what I mean. I was carrying through the illustration. Okay, um, so so the benefit comes when we, by faith, interact with Christ, while we are carnally and corporately interacting with the bread and the wine. So what they're saying here is that. <clears throat> The body and blood of Christ being then not corporately or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers. And Christ is as real to our faith as the elements are to our hands and our taste buds. Now, how many of you have ever seen Christ? None of you. How many of you have ever seen Christ? All of you. Who are Christians. Okay. Turn to Ephesians 4. You can see things with your physical eye. But you can also see them with the eye of faith. Okay. And the sight of faith. Is just as real. As the sight of sight. It's just the mechanism of perception is different. The mechanism of perception with your eyeball is with light and photons striking the back of your retina and the nerve impulses and all that stuff. And the sight of faith is grasping in your mind and in your heart and seeing, if you will, Christ for who and what he is and for who and what he's done. All right. Now, notice Ephesians 4. It says in verse 20, Paul's writing to these Ephesians, he says, But you have not so learned Christ, if so be that you have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. Now, when did the Ephesians ever hear Christ, and when were they ever taught by Christ? Answer, never. Christ was never in Ephesus. Okay? No indication these people were ever in Jerusalem when he was alive. But nevertheless, they had uh, heard him and been taught by him. How? By faith. They had heard his voice through his appointed ministers and they had been taught by him through the written Word of God. And Jesus said the same thing back in John chapter uh, 6. Very interesting passage. Um I don't have it in my notes. Um, so I'm kind of searching for it here. Um, oh yes, here it is. I'm sorry. Yeah, chapter 6 and verse 40. John 6:40. It says, And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Well, that means none of you can be saved. Because you've never seen him, have you? He lived 2,000 years ago. How could you have seen him? And yet you have seen him, haven't you? You know, a lot of times people are explaining stuff to us. And we go, I see that. And what you mean is, I understand that. I grasp that. Mentally, I have a picture of that. Concept or idea. Now, I'm not saying that we need to form mental pictures in our minds of Jesus. That's ridiculous, and it's also dangerous. Uh, There are pictures of Christ, supposedly, that people have hanging up some guy with long hair and kind of effeminate features, and generally it's a head, and he's staring off into space somewhere. Um, That's idolatry, okay? The second commandment says we're not to make any images of God. And Jesus uh, didn't leave us with a picture to remember him by. He left us with the Lord's Supper. That's the picture. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, if I want to remember you, I'll take a picture of you and stick it up on the wall. And I'll look at the picture and it'll remind me of you. Jesus didn't do that. He says, I'm leaving you a ceremony. When you look at the ceremony, I want you to see me. And so the bread and the wine are pictures, if you will, of Christ. And in fact, Peter said regarding Jesus, whom having not seen you love, and though now you see him not, yet you rejoice with joy, unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So in the Lord's Supper, what we need to do is see beyond the elements to the one they represent. So we have communion with Christ. This is not some image we erect in our mind but rather it's the person represented in the book and the person represented by the elements. It is that person which doesn't have any definite physical uh, characteristics, but nevertheless is known to us and seen by us, not in his physical appearance per se, but in his character and in his acts. So when you read the gospels, you see Jesus, when you read the epistles, you see Jesus. When you read the Old Testament, you see Jesus. But you don't see a definite form. Now, I can look at Eric and I can say, well, he has these kind of ears and this kind of forehead and this kind of nose. But I can also say, I see Eric and, and you know, he's, he's a radiologist and he's a Christian and he loves to read the... And see, that's a different kind of sight, right? It's a sight of characteristics, of behavior and... and um, And character as opposed to physical dimensions. And that's what it means to see Jesus. Um, We look at his character. We look at his works. We look at his words. And that's the Jesus that we see and believe in. And that's the same Jesus that we see and commune with when we're having communion at the Lord's Supper. So by faith, we are having fellowship In and with Jesus Christ, and in particular, the body he gave and the blood he shed, and all the benefits and the blessings that that brings to us, that's what we're communing with, him and all those things that those things represent about him. That's what we're communing with when we commune in the Lord's Supper. So we commune with Jesus Christ regarding His saving work on our behalf in His operation within us and with reference to our lives. Now for a final passage, and then we'll take questions if you have them, 1 Corinthians 10:16, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. It says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now, you remember that one of the seven names that were given to the Lord's Supper was communion, right? We celebrate communion. And, and what are we saying? Well, physically, we're communing with the bread and the wine, aren't we? We're having fellowship with it physically, Um, but spiritually we're communing with Christ and we're having fellowship with him in our heart as we pray to him and as we observe him. And that's one of the reasons why, folks, I preach an entire sermon on the person and work of Christ before we partake of the elements, because that's the picture that I want you to have in your minds when you take those elements. That's the image of Christ, that's the person of Christ that you are then interacting with and and communing with in your hearts. So, um, these then are are the elements of of worthy partaking. Uh, We have to outwardly partake in the visible elements, we have to inwardly um, uh, receive uh, and and feed upon Christ um, so that in such a way that he's spiritually present to our faith and that he's as real to us by the sight of faith as the elements are by the sight of the eye. Because spiritual realities are as real as physical realities. It's just you have to have different eyes to see them with. What eye do you use to see physical realities it's this one right here in your head and what eye do you use to see spiritual realities the eye of faith okay so we've got to stir up our faith engage our faith uh, act our faith as the Puritans would say that is you know it's like your car it's sitting there right you got to get in it and you got to turn the key and step on the gas put it in gear let out the clutch and then you're going and that you're, you're acting your car. You're, you're getting your car to act and do what it does. And in the same way, you have to you know, start up your faith, engage your spiritual sight, um, start that communion in your heart with the Lord Jesus, focus on him, think about what was presented regarding him in the message, and have that inward communion with him while outwardly you're taking these elements. Okay. All right. Any questions? Let me just say that's not easy to do, Um, and it's something that we have to work at, and it's something that we have to um, keep ourselves mentally uh, disciplined on, and, um, you know, I find that um, um, as I focus on what was just said in the message about Christ, um, it helps me to Keep my faith active and focused on Him. Keep my engine of faith running, if you will, and <laughs> not letting it die from lack of input and, and meditation. Okay? Yeah, and that's the other thing about New Testament Christianity is it's about 90% inward. It's only about 10% outward. And and that's why when unbelievers show up, it's like, this is boring. You know, I mean, you, you hear this guy talk and, you know, you sing a couple of hymns and you hear a prayer and, and um, you know, you read out of the Bible. I mean, there's not much there. And there isn't. of it's going on in here. And if you're dead in trespasses and sin and there's nothing going on in here, what's going on out here isn't very exciting. And that's why people, you know, don't get much out of church who are unsaved. And someone who's saved, man, there's plenty there to feed and stoke that inward life that's sitting there just flaming away um, and is just looking for fuel. Um... So that's the difference between someone who's dead and alive. And that's why in all false religions, they have enormously elaborate external rituals because there's nothing going on in here. So they've got to have lots of external. That's why they want a golden calf. You know, you can't worship an unseen God if you're not alive inwardly spiritually. How can you have communion with when you're dead there, so you've got to have an external God. And uh, that's why in the Catholic Church and a lot of these other churches, you know, they got all these fancy trappings and robes and chalices and statues and candles and stained glass windows and, and uh, vestments and uh, bell ringing and incense flying around and, you know, all this stuff. I mean, I've seen it all. And it's all very impressive, by the way. Um, you know, stained glass windows make you feel like really... A big high vaulted ceiling and a big hush, you know? It's like, you know, the Catholic church had like this, you know, 400 pound door and you open it and you close it, and it goes cool. and you feel like you're in the house of God instead of fans and plastic Venetian blinds and the scratched up hardwood floor. So there's nothing here to make you feel religious if there's nothing going on in here. And that's what communion is about. I mean, our our ceremony is very simple. I mean, you know, some some bread. I mean, it's not even leavened. It's like doesn't even taste very good, and you know, a little bitty piece of of, of a glass of, of of grape juice, not even wine. Um, I mean, as far as alcoholic goes, you know. So. Uh, Yeah, if there's not anything going on inside, there's sure nothing outside to excite you. And that's precisely why there's so little external. Because God intended for there to be a separation between the sheep and the goats based on the fact the goats wouldn't find the New Covenant Church very exciting when it just does. And so you go to the mega churches, that's why they have all the entertainment, right? That's why they've got to have all the, you know, goings on that they do because that's what appeals to the external, because there's nothing going on internally. So that's why what we do is very spiritual, it's very inward, and if we're spiritually dead, it's all pretty meaningless, and if we're spiritually alive, it's just rich with meaning and significance. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the way in which you work inside of us, far more than outside lord we thank you that you are the god of the heart and that christianity is primarily an inward religion certainly shows itself in good works and certainly has its ceremonies and external physical activities but lord we pray and long for enlarged measures of your work in the sphere of the heart Uh, just expand and illuminate and open uh, each of us to deeper and grander and wider and more profound spiritual understanding and interaction with Christ. Father, uh, remove the cataracts from our spiritual eyes so that we can see Jesus clearly in the Word and fall in love with Him again and worship Him more profoundly. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name.